The scripture today is from 1 Corinthians 6, and that's 12 through 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy both, one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Vicki. So good morning. Uh, good to see you. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer City. Uh, it's good to be with you this morning. Good to see so many of you. I guess I've learned what I need to do is just send a very, um, uh, an email, a curious email in the middle of the week saying we're going to talk about difficult things in church and everybody shows up. And so uh, maybe we'll figure out how to do that from here on out. Who knows? But we are uh, this morning continuing in a series uh, on the seven deadly sins during Lent, if you've not been with us, that may be curious to you why we would choose something that sounds as menacing as that, and it's because during the Lenten season, the church has historically uh, seen it as a time to really do the hard work of introspection, uh, that we should pe be people who are constantly bearing the fruits of repentance, as the Bible says, and so we take a look at our sin, and we're, we're trying to do that by looking at these, these seven big ones, these seven root seven root uh, sins in the heart that lead to all of the other kinds of sins in our lives. And so we're really doing this because the church is the, the place where you come to learn to be a sinner. Sounds strange to say it that way, I know, um, but, but it is true. If you can't be a sinner in the church, where can you be one? Definitely not in our culture. And as you are probably aware by now, uh, we come this morning to the sin of lust. Now, let me try to set this up for you. Uh, lust has historically been viewed as a, a lesser of the, uh, in the list of the seven. Uh, not nearly as serious as pride or greed or, or envy. Not nearly as serious as those sins, but, but definitely the most popular of the seven. And so if you want one way of saying it, lust really is, it's not the widest road, but it, um, excuse me, it's, it's the, the widest road, but it's definitely not the deepest pit. And I start there because I want us to remember, I want us to remember that or we might be tempted to pay too much attention to lust. And the problem with paying too much attention to just one of these seven is, of course, uh, that you not pay enough attention to the six other deadly sins. And that's true in many ways of the church, I'm afraid. Uh, I would say it to you this way. Pride kills more marriages than adultery. Right? Pride kills more marriages than sexual sin does. Uh, and and we, have to be, we have to remember that. 
uh, because I think in our culture, people that have a moral compass, whether they're Christian or used to be Christian or just, or just religious in general, we tend to be hypersensitive to sexual sin. I think it's because we live in a hypersexualized culture in many ways, but we tend to be hypersensitive to sexual sin. That's a good thing and a bad thing. I mean, it's a good thing in many ways, but it's a bad thing in many ways too because what happens, one of the ways you can see where it's a bad thing is that lust, because of how we hyper, our hypersensitivity to these things, lust is the hardest of the seven deadly sins to talk about, and that's a really bad thing. And so I sent out an email this week at the end of the week to warn parents of the subject matter uh, this morning. Now, I didn't do that with any of the other sins in the series. Why is that? Uh, you'll notice uh, down near where they usually are that I didn't, I didn't include discussion questions like we normally do. What happens, if you're not aware, we have community groups, small groups that meet, and most of those groups just take the sermon and they try to flesh it out and discuss it and, and, and ask questions and probe into one another's lives a little bit. And that usually happens, so it'll happen this afternoon and this evening as community groups get together. And I sat on my computer uh, for an hour trying to imagine community groups this afternoon or this evening having conversations about lust and sexual temptation. Anybody else not going to community group today? <laughs> I'm not, but not because of this. I have, something else, I have something else going on. But I sat there and thought, what kinds of questions do I ask? So, the, so community group leaders, I'm sorry, you're, you're on your own. <laughs> you got to figure it out yourself today. I mean, have you ever, have you ever in your life been in a, in a group setting where people were talking openly about sexual sin? At least where, you know, we segregate and then we feel a little bit better. Girls and boys and that sort of thing. But community groups are both those things. Parents, parents get sweaty hands and wobbly knees thinking about having to have the talk with their kids. Why do we have a talk about sex, but we don't have a talk about greed? Or a talk about pride? I mean, you see, there's something, there's something we have to wrestle with here in the way that we approach this. We don't, like, we don't like to talk about these issues. We don't like to talk about sex. And I would say to you, I think that's one of the reasons why lust has such a hold on us. We may not be doing a lot of talking about it, but the culture we live in is, I think you're aware of that, it's everywhere, constantly. And so our silence and our secrets when it comes to this sin is, is not a good strategy. It's destructive. And so we get the opportunity in God's great grace to us this morning uh, to talk for a little bit. And we're going to do the same thing we've been doing every week as we've gone through this, this series. We're taking this sin. If you look in the outline there, I've provided for you. And we're just going to do these, these kind of walk through the passage in these four rubrics. First, we want to define what is lust. Secondly, and this is going to be, I think, I hope, the, see, I, 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 I send out that warning to parents, but I really do have to kind of stay 30,000, you can't do a whole lot of, you know, nitty gritty stuff in a sermon, you really, it's really more vision and 30,000, you know, feet in the air, and so we are going to stay away from a lot of the stuff that probably is, is concerning for smaller ears, but we, we want to get behind it and say, where does it come from, what's the source, what's, re, what's really happening in the heart, what's the heart engine that that really produces uh, this sin in our lives. So we define it, we go after the source. Thirdly, we want to turn to the gospel and we want to see how does the gospel, how does what Jesus has done for us and his work for us really beat? How does it beat this sin in our lives? And as he begins to do that, what would the change be that would come because of it? Okay, so the definition, the source, the solution, and the change. We've been doing this every week and we'll do it this morning again. So let's start first 
let's just turn to the passage and try to define, at least from, from 1 Corinthians 6 here, uh, what lust is. And let me, before I get into the specifics, let me first say uh, that as we talk about lust, the first thing is that lust is a sin of the body. 1 Corinthians 6, if you notice, as, as, um, as Vicky read a minute ago, is all about the body. I mean, if you go and do a study of just circle the word body in your Bible, you know, and you'll see how many times that word is mentioned over and over again by Paul here. And it ends, you'll look down in verse 21, with the admonition, glorify God in your body. And so we could, we could start by saying that lust is a failure to do just that. It's a failure to glorify God in your body. Christian discipleship involves the body. Because the body and the heart are connected. You know this, right? Physical health uh, affects spiritual health. And therefore, spiritual health involves the body. It matters what you do with your body. We're not, we're not Platonists. We don't believe in the separation between body and soul. And the body doesn't matter at all. And you just, you know, you just you know, engage yourself in spiritual things. No, we believe that the two are connected. And so lust, lust refers to allowing yourself, look at verse 12, to be dominated. You see that? To be dominated or to be enslaved. Uh, Paul says, I will not be enslaved by anything. Lust refers to allowing yourself to be enslaved, to be dominated by your physical urges and desires. The Greek word uh, for lust that, that, that comes uh, up over and over again in the scriptures is a word epithumia. It's, it, thumia is the word desire. Epi is just a prefix on the front of it. It, it refers to an over-desire. It's an out-of-control an out of desire. Uh, you know, and so in that sense, all sin is, is lustful. It's allowing your life to be controlled by the physical and emotional urges and desires of the body. And so self-control, we know, is a fruit of the Spirit. And the, the Apostle Paul describes his own process of sanctification when he says in 1 Corinthians 9, just a few chapters to the right here, I, he says, I discipline my body and I, and I keep it under control. Now, for him, it wasn't because he was worried about what he looked like and he wanted, you know, he wanted to be physically attractive to other people. He knew. If he, you know, and that's, not, you know, that's one thing. What Paul's talking about there is he, if I don't reign in my body, if I don't get control of the physical, emotional you know, dynamics of my life, if I don't go after those things, I'm not going to be successful spiritually. So he says in Romans 6 that we read a minute ago, let not sin reign in your mortal body to obey its passions. Don't let sin reign in your body to make you obey its passions, and don't present your members as instruments of righteousness, excuse me, of unrighteousness, as Paul says. And so if you want to undo sin in your life, you can't just read your Bible and pray. Those are good things. Do those things, please. But you have to engage your body. You have to rein in your physical passions through physical discipline and self-control. That's the first thing. Because this is a passage about the body. But, of course, as we move on, we want to say, when the Bible speaks of lust, and as we're going to talk about it today, we really mean uh, we're talking about lust as a sexual sin. That lust is a defective sexual desire. It's sexual immorality. And I like the phrase sexual immorality because it, it shows us there's good sexual activity and then there's immoral sexual activity. And lust refers to the desire behind all sexual uh, activity that is immoral. So here we go. Here are the things, right? We're just going to say these things out loud. So adultery, homosexuality, pornography, masturbation, and all lustful imaginings, the things that Jesus calls looking with lustful intent in Matthew 5, verse 28. We have all of these things. Adul that's adultery in the heart. All of this is what we have in mind this morning as we come to this topic. Now, instead of going case by case, 
And you'll see most of them, by the way, if you look back at the assurance of pardon up a little further in 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul starts to, to list these things, you see a lot of those things I just mentioned there. And what we want to ask is, well, what do they all have in common? What is it about the things I just mentioned that, that make them explicitly immoral? And in order to, to answer that question, we have to go to the, the Bible and see what it says about what sex was designed to be. Because once we see what sex was designed to be, then we will have an idea of, okay, here's where things go wrong. And it's expressed rather vividly uh, here in 1 Corinthians 6. Paul says, look at verses 16 and 17, that when you, when you engage in sexual intercourse with someone, when you have sex with someone, you're joined. That's his word. You see that there? There's a joining. You, you, you're, you're joined to that person. You become another way. You become one flesh, verse 16. In other words, there is, a, there is an emotional, spiritual knitting together that happens as our bodies are knitted together physically. In fact, the way anatomically and physically our bodies are knit together is like a living parable of what's happening to our souls and to the spiritual parts of, our, of ourselves as we engage in sexual intercourse with one another. The word there literally is, is the word glue. You're glued. So if you want a really, if you want a really explicit illustration of this, take two popsicle sticks and glue them together and let them sit for a few hours and then try to tear them apart. What happens? Little chunks. It's not a clean break, right? Little chunks come off. Um, you know, little chunks and splinters and these sorts of, of things come off on each side. Now, take the, the, the stick that you've just unglued and glue it to another one and let it sit and rip it apart. And what happens? More chunks. And here's what the Bible is saying. That's you every time you have sex. That every person that you've ever, that you've ever been intimate like that, like this with... You have a part of them with you for the rest of your life, and you leave a part of you with them that you have to live without for the rest of your life because it's just the way it works. There's no, way, there's no other way to do it. Sex is, has been designed by God, and it has an interpersonal and social dimension. It is meant to bring two people into connection and relationship with one another. It creates intimacy beyond physical intimacy. The way we used to say it, those of you who are, you know, are a little bit older in the, in the room, sex is a conjugal act. It conjoins people together into one flesh, creating and strengthening and symbolizing a union of lifelong love. It creates a powerful and unbreakable bond between two people. And so, according to the Bible, there is no such thing as casual sex. That's, that's, that's a figment of, of, of the sexual figment of the imagination of the sexual revolution in the 60s and 70s. Sex with no strings attached just isn't a real thing. Now, it's interesting. There are two movies that were released, uh, both of them in, actually in, in 2011 uh, in Hollywood. Um, one, the title was No Strings Attached with Ashton, Ashton Kutcher and, and Natalie Portman. The other one was uh, Friends with Benefits with Justin Timberlake and Mila Kunis. And both of these movies, they were literally, uh, they came out within months of one another. Both of these movies explore the idea of casual sex. And both, listen, both squarely come down on the opinion that there is no such thing. That it just doesn't work. Now let's think about, isn't, that, that's amazing. Do you understand how amazing that is? That Hollywood instinctively knows this. 
That just blows my mind. When you think about how callous our culture is to these things, Hollywood knows if you try to have a sexual relationship without a loving relationship, the only possible ending is devastation and heartbreak. And this is because God invented sex, and he made it to work a certain way. Sex is designed by God for love and for life. So think about that for a minute. There, first, there's a design. Notice the language of design in the passage. Verse 12, food is meant for the stomach. Verse 13, the body is meant for sexual immorality. Not, not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. So we are created. And there is a design woven into the fabric of creation that touches every part of our lives. We are not self-defined. We don't get to make things up, and we can't make them be something we want them to be. You bump up against this design, whether you even affirm it or not, and, it's in, and it includes all things in our lives, even sex. Sex is not self-expression. So there's a design, but specifically there's a design toward two things, toward giving love and giving life. Sex is designed by God towards those two things, towards giving love and giving life. It's an act of self-giving love towards another, and it holds the power to create new life. It, it not only connects us to one another in the moment, but to the children that are a result. It assumes other connectedness, and it is future and forever directed. And so sex that is immoral reduces sexual pleasure to individual physical gratification apart from relationship with the person. Lust, then, is the pursuit of sexual pleasure without its love-giving and life-giving potential. And that's what all of the different forms of sexual immorality up at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 6 have in common. Lust pretends that sex is a party for one. It turns sex into a self-gratification project. And lust, sexual pleasure, is divorced from love and mutual self-giving. There is, there is no thought for the good of the other person, nor for the project of giving life. It's an act of taking. It's an act of consuming. It's the very opposite of what God intends. And therefore, lust, here's the tragedy, lust... You know, in most of the sexual activity in, in, in our culture, the, it actually alienates people from each other in the place where they're supposed to be experiencing intimate union. And that's the tragedy. Fred, Frederick Buechner put it this way. It was really great. He says, sex is sinful to the degree that instead of drawing you closer to other human beings in their humanness, it unites bodies but leaves the insides hungrier and more alone than, than before. And so now we can understand sexual immorality. It is immoral because it is selfish. It puts the individual's physical urges and cravings ahead of caring for the other person. Think about that. Think about the grossness of that. That what's motivating you is the urges physically and emotionally inside rather than a real sense of trying to care for the person who's right in front of you. It destroys intimacy and community. And that's why in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, if you look there, I almost included it in the sermon passage, but it was such a great Assurance of pardon there. Paul puts all of the instances of sexual immorality right alongside of greed and gossip. It's interesting. Do you see that? He says, you know, sexual immoral, homosexuals, all these kinds of things, greed, greedy, gossips. And so he's, he's linking all of these people. We don't do that in the church. We single out people that struggle with sexual temptation. We make them, a, you know, the, the worst kinds of sinners. We don't, you know, gossip is there too. Hello. Right beside one another. And the reason he does that, Paul's making an argument. He's saying sexual immorality and greed and gossip, they're all the same. They put the desires of the individual ahead of the needs of the community. 
the purpose of sex is to build community between two people. Not just to give yourself pleasure and fulfillment. Lust is being so consumed with sexual desire that you use the other person for your own physical gratification. You take. You consume. And it's meant for self-donation and love. Now let me apply in just a couple of places, okay? Let me just apply this in three places that I think I hope will touch every single person in the room, hopefully. And the first is, let's just talk about pornography for just a second. Because the Greek word here is porneo, by the way, which is, you know, derivative right there. But the, the allure, the allure of pornography, the reason it's so powerful, particularly for young, for young men and women, the allure is the promise of physical pleasure with no connection. That, and that's why it's so awful. It is the epitome of using someone else to gratify yourself because there's no relationship. There's, there's no intimacy. There's no connection. There's no tenderness. It's, it's rough. Sorry to be so graphic. And it's a solitary act. And so studies are, you see, you can see the brokenness there. Studies are being done about how young men saturated in a pornographic culture are, are growing up into adulthood and are unable to enjoy sex once they get to marriage because they don't know how to connect. Because the real joy of sexual intimacy is the connection. But, okay, let's talk about, if you're here and you're a teenager, so teenagers, you didn't think we were going to get through this without me saying something to you this morning, did you? Or if you're unmarried, let me say this. If you're not married, or if you're a teenager, if you're not there yet, if you love the person you're with, you won't have sex with them until you're married. Not only because it's not wise, but because it's not loving. Sex before marriage is selfish, to be blunt. You might tell yourself it's because you love the person you're with, but it's not. It's a fundamentally selfish act to ask someone to be physically and emotionally, uh, to ask them to physically and emotionally share themselves with you before you commit to share your whole life with one another. To be physically naked before you're naked in every other way, it's out of order. It's just out of order. Don't do it. It creates breakdown. Okay, but married people, i got to talk to you for a second, too. And here's what I would say to the married people. To you married people, what we learn here is that sex is a, a renewal, a covenant renewal ceremony. It's a repledging of your exclusive love and loyalty to one another, your intention to know the other person's nakedness and to love them. So sex is about connection. And let me say something, okay? If sex is really about connection, then pastorally, when I see this, if there's no sex... A lot of times it means there's no connection. So one of the duties, get this, okay? We, we've got Presbyterians all wrong, let me just tell you. One of the duties of marriage, according to our confession of faith, is conjugal love. I, heard, I knew that would get an amen from somewhere. I have in my notes, I'm not going to ask for amens because that could get embarrassing. The confession says that. Are you with me? Listen, the Puritans, who were hardly prudish, believed it was so important they made it a matter of church discipline. Hello. That could get really... That could get really embarrassing. This is important stuff, do you see? So there's the definition. It's, a, it's, it's using sex to take and to consume rather than to give and to give love and to give life. 
And so let's move on. We've got to keep going. Uh, what's the longing then underneath sexual longing? And the answer uh, this text hints at and the answer that the rest of the Bible gives is that there's a spiritual longing actually behind and underneath all of our sexual longing. G.K. Chesterton famously said that every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. In other words, we may not know it, but we're after something more than sex in every sexual pursuit. That sexual temptation is, is about connection, I've said, right? Not physical gratification. And most of the times we don't recognize this, but that's where the power in sexual temptation comes from. Sex is not about the sex. It's about connection. And so what you have is a lot of sexual dysfunction that we are dealing with in our culture comes from a lack of connection, whether it's between a father and a daughter or a father and a son or friends or whatever. And, and, and so there's this, there's, this, um, there's this brokenness in this lack of connection and the desire for that lost connection is so strong and the pain of it is so raw that psychologically something gets twisted and it becomes sexualized and it begins to express itself in destructive ways sometimes. Because there really is a desire for connection. And honestly, that's why I think it's so hard for us to talk about these things. Why, 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 why is this, there's so much hurt? There's so much shame because most of us, in almost every one of our life stories, there's a chapter that contains sexual sin. And it is unbearable because of the loss of relational intimacy and connection that it's created. And I think that proves my point. Plato, for example, explained erotic love. Now get this, he explained erotic love in a story where human beings were created as spherical creatures with four arms and four legs and two heads. And as punishment for trying to usurp the God's power, they were sliced in half. And according to Plato, in our current condition, we're only half of the original whole. Eros, erotic love, is our yearning to be reunited with our other half. It's a desire for completeness. It is, my, my favorite little phrase that I ran across this week was, it is our desire for reunion into oneness. And however, the text hints at the fact that this oneness we long for is not oneness even with another person. Do you see this? Look. But oneness with God himself. Not just here, but in Ephesians 5, Paul uses the language of the two becoming one flesh. He's citing Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, and in both places, here and in Ephesians 5, he immediately transitions beyond marriage to talk about our relationship with God. So you see in this passage, uh, look, look there, uh, verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Now what does that mean? Now hang in, hang in there with me right here. It means that sex is transcendental, that it connects us to spiritual realities beyond the physical act itself. It is an earthly expression and experience inside of marriage of the kind of communion we once had and we have lost and we are desperate to have again with our maker. That's why Paul talks about being joined to the Lord and becoming one spirit with him. Those words capture the deepest longings of our hearts. C.S. Lewis said that we all feel like we're on the outside of on the outside, on the wrong side of a door, and we want desperately to get back in. To get back into where? Back into Eden, back into God, back into the place of communion with him. Literally, if I could be really, to get inside him. And the Bible is clear that the oneness of marital love and marital sexual love is the one place on earth where we most feel God's embrace. 
And that's why it's so sacred. And it's why when we try to substitute it with other sexual experiences, it becomes so potentially destructive. And so what's the solution? Let's keep going. If that really is what's behind this drive, what's the solution? And the text is very plain. Look at verse 18. What does it tell us to do? Flee sexual immorality. Okay? So here's, here's what we have to say about that. Do everything you can. Put software on your computer. Bounce your eyes. You know, all of these things. It's not, this is not legalism to say these kinds of things. These are good strategies. Understand yourself better and know what makes you particularly vulnerable to sexual temptation. Avoid opportunities at all costs to be tempted. Be proactive in spiritual disciplines. I mean, one piece of advice from John Piper that I thought was really helpful, he just says, you know, if you're dealing with sexual temptation, move into useful activity and away from idleness. And here's his phrase. He says, lust grows fast in the garden of leisure. So get up and do something. Sweep a room. Hammer a nail. Write a letter. I mean, if you want to help your teenage son battle lust, parents, get him a summer job. Don't let him sit around the house all summer with nothing to do. Those are all good strategies, right? However, they just barely scratch the surface because the power behind lust is in the deep longings of the heart for connection with God. And so the only way to really get after the power of lust in your life is to take the truth of the gospel into those deep places. And here's how you do that. Here's what I mean. The problem with these people that Paul's writing to is that they had forgotten vital gospel truths. He asked them, verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And then again, he asks, he's full of questions here. It's really great. Verse 19, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? See, lust rages when we are forgetful of gospel realities. And there are two images Paul uses. The first is member there in verse 15. Do you see that? It means a limb or a part of a body like an arm or a leg. The second in verse 19 is the image of temple. And, and, you know, if you're familiar with your Bible, you know that those two images are really about the same thing, aren't they? Connection. Intimacy. Intimacy with God. And so if you're a Christian, here's the, the doctrine I want to go after for just a minute. If you're a Christian, then you're in Christ. Think about that. You're in Christ. In Christian theology, we call it union with Christ. And this is, this is what we've been talking about. Connection with God, reunion into oneness with him, union with Christ. Because union with Christ exists uh, mostly in the realm of theology, however, we describe it theologically. We, we, we understand union with Christ as a doctrine. And so the Romans 6 passage, for example, talks about Christians dying with Christ, being raised with him. And, and we just read this not long ago in our community Bible reading. And so if you're a Christian... You're in Christ. That means everything that goes for him goes for you. He died on the cross for your sins. You're in him. That means, Galatians 2, you're co-crucified with him. It was like you were right there with him. He was raised. You're in him. And so you also have been raised. Have been raised. Not will be. Have been. You will be. But you have been raised to newness of life. He is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. You're in him. And so Ephesians 2.6 says you're there right now in the heavenlies, in Christ Jesus. Do you get an idea of this doctrine? He's righteous. You're not. I'm not. But he is, and we're in him, and so we're righteous too. That's the, this, the whole Christian doctrine of salvation is settled on this. Christianity isn't about whether you're good or bad. That's not the deciding factor. What matters is whether you're in Christ or not. Are you in Christ? Faith is believing in Jesus. It's believing into Jesus as being hidden in Christ. That's the doctrine here. 
And so if you want an illustration, Rankin Wilborn illustrates, I think, this well with a story about a friend who got a job at Disney as the person who um, was inside the Mickey Mouse costume. And this young girl who played Mickey in Disney had never known love. I mean, her life had been full of rejection. She kind of floated through life um, unseen. It was really painful. And then she talked about, she put on the Mickey costume. (laughs) And all of a sudden, just her presence could elicit screams of delight. And little children would run and bowl her over with hugs. And people would stand in long lines just to get their picture taken with her. It was this whole new experience. She was hidden in Mickey. She was covered in Mickey's righteousness. Laugh. I mean, it's funny. But that's what it's like to be in Christ. To be hidden in him. To be covered in his righteousness. To, be, to have the Father base his relationship on you on the basis of, of what Jesus has done and not what you have done. That's good news if you're in the midst of sexual temptation, isn't it? His record, not yours. But here's the thing, okay? Here's the thing. It's not enough only to understand union with Christ doctrinally. We can't stop there. We have to understand it experientially, too, that oneness with God is not just a doctrine. It's something that we're meant to experience. It's something that's meant to be a living reality in our lives. Look at verse 17 again. He who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Now, let me explain that by using Jesus' words in John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Now, this has been a huge thing in my life in the past three to six months. That, uh, and if you pray for me, this is one of the ways that you can pray for me, that I'm having to learn that eternal life is not doing for God. What matters at the end of the day, uh, when, when I am long gone, what matters is not what will last. What's really significant is not the things I do for him. It's not accomplishing things for him. That's not where real joy and meaning and power come from. Eternal life is to know him. And to know him means more than to be able to recite the catechism from memory. Or to maintain a stellar attendance record at church. I mean, the older translations, if you go there, you're likely to read something like this from Genesis. This is about to get a little weird. Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived a son. Now, eternal life, according to the Bible, is knowing God in a way that is similar to Adam's knowing of Eve. It's to know him intimately. It's to know him sensually. Now, don't freak out. Don't freak out. That word just means to to know him with your senses, to be able to taste and to see and to feel. And you find this sort of thing Unfortunately, not in Presbyterian theology, but throughout the church history and the mystics particularly, who tend to unsettle Presbyterians and other doctrinal types quite a bit. So John Don, using sexually charged language to, to describe God's salvation in his life, he wrote this. He says, take me to you, imprison me, for I except you enthrall me shall never be free nor ever chaste except you ravish me. That doesn't fit in our little theological box, guys. 
Another example, St. Teresa of Avila described visions and experiences and encounters, whatever the word you would use would be there, of, of having these experiential um, times of, of really knowing her union with Christ. And here are the words that she used to describe those experiences. Ecstasy, thrusting, moaning. I'm blushing, okay? This makes, me, this makes us terribly uncomfortable. Because we can't, ex- we can't imagine experiencing God like that. Right? We, it, we're very, we can't imagine experiencing God, having communion with him like that. But here's what I want to say to you. That's why lust has such a hold on us. Eternal life is knowing him. It's having, it's having experiences of intimacy with him that are, that are ecstatic. So that your heart begins to, to, to know him at a deep level. Now John 17, 3 teaches that you can only know him like that through Jesus Christ. Because it is only in Jesus Christ that you see the depths of his desire for you. Listen to the very end of the passage here. Verses 19 and 20. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Jesus Christ has paid the dowry price to have you. And it was a high price. You were expensive. Do you know that? You were expensive. He paid with his own blood. That is the extent to which... His love, that is the extent of his love and desire for you. His love is the love your heart needs. His friendship is the friendship that will make you feel whole. His face, when you see it, will be the beauty that will ravish you and make you chaste. Let me apply that before we move on to the very end here and just say this. What, what we're saying here is this communal, this, this need to, to be known and to know, this, this deep need for connection that we all live with. Lust thrives in ironically in privacy and isolation therefore the remedy always requires community openness and accountability if the if the desires of sexual temptation if the desire really is connection then the solution is community connection and and intimacy in marriage is the absolute best preventative for lust can i say that again connection and intimacy in marriage is the absolute best preventative for lust now for those of you who are not married or who are 13 and can't get married Connection relationally, friends, family, connection with people, connection with God himself. Rebecca DeYoung, she wrote this, the best advice for resisting lust is not to get an internet filter, although you should do that, but to have good friends. C.S. Lewis said, love is the great conqueror of lust. A a pro-love lifestyle in your marriage towards one another and your friendships this is the way to break the chains of sexual addiction. Generosity and sacrificial love is the training, training ground for sexual purity. But lastly, let's, let's finish. So if, if the gospel were, I know, I saw on your faces when I started to talk about St. Teresa and all that, that you're like, I don't know. I, it, I, I'm not making some doctrinal point there. I'm merely saying, do you know him the way you know a friend? Do you know him the way you know a father? Do you know him the way you know a lover? Because it's the knowing of him that is, that is the, what really satisfies the longings of your hearts. And what would begin to happen in your life as that began to happen to you? There would be change. Paul holds out the possibility of change, which is good news if you're discouraged and ready to give up. So listen again. This is from the assurance of pardon. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor gossips, nor swindlers, 
will inherit the kingdom of God. And you're just being pounded into the ground, aren't you? And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Do you see what Paul says? That's what some of you were. Past tense. You used to be that, but not anymore. You've been washed in baptism. You've been justified. The verdict of God has come down upon your life. You've been past tense. You've been past tense. Sanctified. God is making you into something new. It's already, it's already begun and you can't undo it. He is, he is undoing the destructive patterns of sin in your life by the Spirit, Paul says. So there's a new power at work in your life. Supernatural power for change. And it's reminiscent of Ezekiel chapter 36 where, where God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit And I will cause you to walk in my statutes and to obey my rules. Change, right? New power for obedience. If you're here and you're in the grip of lust, the good news of the gospel is that God forgives your sins. But it's even more than that. The good news of the gospel is that God is overthrowing your sins. So the opposite of a lustful heart is a pure heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart. And that word means true, simple, undefined. Kierkegaard said purity of heart is to will one thing. Augustine is famous, and I love this. You, you should chuckle at this probably. Augustine is famous for saying before he became a Christian, God, make me chaste, just not yet. <laughs> that was his prayer. <laughs> because the obstacle in his life to becoming a Christian was lust. He had a lover that he wasn't willing to lose. He had a divided heart. And he knew Christianity was true. He wanted to follow Jesus, but he just couldn't give up his sin. And then something happened to him. Something changed at the level of desire in his heart. And he began to experience such an overwhelming sense of joy in God that it eclipsed the joy he had in sex. He began to desire one thing, not two. He became pure in heart. And that was his conversion. He would go on to write that it was something that God had to do in him, that he couldn't do it on his own. And for you and I, it means we can't control our lives at the level of desire where most of our life is lived. We're at God's mercy. But here's the thing. Isn't that a great place to be? If you're at his mercy, it's a great place to be. And so we would be wise to adopt Augustine's famous prayer, Lord, command what you will, and then give what you command. And the promise just to aid your prayers is that the pure in heart will see God. And I want to say to you, that's worth fighting for because that's home, to see God. That, that would be the undoing of every sinful desire. And that is the opportunity that's before us as we listen to his word this morning and as we come to his table in these moments. And so let's pray. Will you pray with me? And so, Father, as we reflect on these things and as we prepare to come and eat this meal together, we do pray just that. That it would be a time of seeing you. That's what you promise. Um, and that is what we need. We desperately need to know you, the barrenness of our lives, the hardness of them are due to that, that we, that we don't know you. We're busy. We're busy living for you. We're, we're full of things that we're trying to do for whatever motivation, but there's, there's a drought of knowing you oftentimes. Forgive us. Forgive us that we would be so content to, to live our lives without a deep knowing, a deep intimacy with you. 
that we would that we would uh, that we would just we would we would prefer just to be roommates that pass one another often rather than there being a living connection. You've created us for so much more. We live unaware of that. And even when we become aware, we're not sure if that's really what we want. How dare, oh, how awful. And so thank you for your grace and mercy to us in Jesus Christ. Thank you that in him we come to know you. In him we see your great pursuing love for us. In him our hearts can be warmed to the truth of, of just how much you desire us. And so as we come to, you, to this table this morning, would you make known, make real, and make known those truths to our hearts. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> His love is the only love that can make us whole. Teenagers, if you're here, the love, the love of a boy or a girl cannot make you whole. You know, if you're married and maybe you're not happy in your marriage, don't think that the love of someone else other than your spouse will ever make you whole. Even if you're married and you're happily married, don't think that the love of your spouse will ultimately make you whole. Only the love of the one who died for you. I, I'm struck... That was really messy bread. It just ripped to shreds. It's just all over the place up here. Um, but I was, I was just reflecting. Um, that, is what, that is what it costs for him to love us, that he would be ripped to shreds to make us whole. Only he can make us whole. And so receive the words of his promise to you. This is, again, the reflection of his great love, uh, that you need his face. Here is the promise that his face has turned towards you to bless you. And so receive these words, and may they fill your heart with hope and peace. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Go in his peace.